Welcome, and thank you for joining us in today's teaching as we continue our study through the book of Revelation. Here is Pastor Greg. Good morning. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. Um, This morning, as you can see, we have uh, communion together, and uh, this is uh, what we do. We put it it off a week because of family camp last week, but normally the first Sunday of each month, uh, we partake of communion together. And, you know, last week I had a message. Some of you obviously were up at camp and and weren't here for this message. But the topic last week was on the grace of God and really, um, really the necessity for us as Christians to really grab hold of God's grace. Uh, in a greater way, that we should be growing in our grace and our knowledge of the Lord. But, you know, when it comes to the, the Lord's table and partaking of communion together, you know, grace is all over this table. It, it, it's really what we see in how Christ saved us. You know, I shared last week that grace is being able, uh, it's, it, it's getting something that we don't deserve. And I mean, even when we look at what these elements represent, all of us can say, you know what, I didn't deserve it. Even though there are people in this world that are, quote, religious people, that somehow they think that God owes them salvation because maybe they lived a life that in their standard anyway, that they lived a pretty good life and a religious life. But we read in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 64, we read that our righteousness is as filthy rags. (laughs) It's kind of a grotesque kind of a picture that our righteousness, our right standing before God is like filthy rags. I guess the question I could ask us all this morning is, how great is God's forgiveness in your life? How great do you place that forgiveness in your life? Let me read to you from Isaiah 64. This is actually a a verse or verses that one of the Welsh revivalists used. And he, he, he read from Isaiah 64. He says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, calling out to God, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. As fire burns brushwood as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. It's pretty powerful. Calling out to God, crying out to God that you would rend the heavens. And then it goes on to say, when you did awesome things for which we did not look, We weren't even looking for it. You were doing awesome things and we did not look. You came down, the mountains shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you, who acts for the one who waits for him. You meet him with rejoices and does righteousness. You who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry for we have sinned. In these ways we continue and we need to be saved. But then he says, but we are all like an unclean thing. 
and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O oh Lord, you are our Father. Don't you, aren't you rejoicing in that? But now, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. And all we are the work of your hand. Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, we all are your people. Your holy cities are a wilderness. And I want you to take note of this because we'll be talking about this this morning. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem is desolate. Our holy and beautiful temple where our fathers praised you is burned up with fire and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very severely? How much grace, as I asked you last week, how much grace did you need this week? How much forgiveness of sin did you call upon the Lord and ask Him to cleanse you afresh and cleanse your heart again? And we all need that, don't we, on a continual basis. If you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and will continue to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's the gospel of grace. It's really what we're partaking of this morning. The broken body of Jesus Christ and His shed blood for our sin. This is a time for us to receive this grace over our lives again and again and again. But this is a time for us to believe that if you will confess, if you'll believe that His shed blood continues to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, that that blood is just continually applied to your life. Day after day after day. You know when that'll end? When we're in heaven. With our new bodies, where there's going to be no more curse, no more sin, no more sorrow, and all, all of those things are going to be gone. You won't wrestle with this issue any longer. But until then, we need to bathe in the grace and the mercy of our Lord. We won't know until we're in heaven someday. Really, the real significance, really, of what Christ accomplished for us on that cross. But we can just sit here and partake of this communion together just in, in, in awe, really, of really what Christ has done. And I hope it's an awe to all of us this morning that this broken body that was broken for you is for you as an individual person that he died on that cross. It's not just for the whole mass. It's for us as individual people that he hung there and he was broken for our iniquities. And so let's, uh, let's pray over the bread and we'll partake together and then we'll continue on in worship. Father... We thank you for your broken body. Lord, they pierced your hands and your feet. Lord, they placed, Lord, that crown of thorns on your head. They beat your body. Lord, they ran that spear into your side. Lord, so that we might live. We might have freedom from the bondage of sin. And we thank you for it. Lord, I just pray that we would be rejoicing 
this morning in our hearts that we know you as our Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Father to bruise Jesus. It pleased the Father to bruise Jesus for him to hang on that cross. It pleased him because he knew the joy that was going to come. He knew what was going to come out of that cross. We have eternity with the Lord. That's reality. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and my prayer is that everyone here in this place does, that you know him as Lord and Savior, because this applies to you. So, Joe, if you want to pray over the cup, and we'll we'll all partake together. Father, thank you for, again, sending your son. Thank you that uh, we, we don't understand it, but it, Please you to put him to death on our behalf. It pleased you, and it, and it pleased him. He was willing to go to the cross to bear the righteous justice of you, Father, for sin. And uh, he did it on our behalf. And so thank you for the Son. And thank you for his spilled blood that redeems us, that purchases us to yourself, Lord. And we are bought at a price now, we're not our own. And we thank you for that. And, uh, we're so grateful for what you've done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I titled uh, this morning's message, uh, The Faithful Lamb and the 144,000. It's, uh, let's, go ahead, let's go ahead and just read the text first. John uh, now is going to get a, have another vision, and it says, Then I looked... And behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him was 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they were virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. We can see that, even as I titled this message, the faithful Lamb and the 144,000 chosen evangelists by God that God raises up during the tribulation period to be witnesses, really an outpouring of his grace and his mercy, really during this seven-year tribulation period. God's desire is that all would be saved. That's the heart of our Lord. That's the faithfulness of our God. In chapter 12, for those of you that were here when I taught this chapter, we read that war broke out in heaven and Satan and his angels were cast to the earth by Michael the archangel and his angels with him. 
They, God didn't even have to do it. He just says, I'll just use my angel, Michael, and his angels. And, and he cast Satan out, and all of those that followed Satan were cast out with him and cast to the earth. And we read in chapter 12, verse 12, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. He, know, he, he, he knows and will know that his time is drawing close to an end. He knows that God's in control. He knows that God is going to have his way. But he's going to try and pull down as many people as he can in the time that he has. In chapter 13, John sees the culmination of a one-world government. In verse 1, John saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. A one-world religion is also going to come to its culmination during the middle of the tribul- by the middle of the tribulation period. And we read that the false prophet comes forth with great signs of deception. He sets up the image of the beast in the temple, and then he demands that those who are on the earth would worship the beast. And those who would refuse, he would seek to kill them. We also see that there's going to be a one-world monetary system that is going to be put in place. By the middle of the tribulation period, it's going to be in full swing. All of these things here, a one-world government, a one-world religion, a one-world monetary system, we can look at our news today, you can look at things in the world today, and you can see glimpses of those things being put in place. But they are going to come to their full peak, so to speak, by the middle of the tribulation, and they're all going to be headed up by the beast or the Antichrist. Chapter 12 and chapter 13 of Revelation, we might say that these are possibly two of the darkest chapters in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 7, we read that John saw 144,000 Jews. These are those Jewish evangelists, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel equaling 144,000 evangelists that are going to be commissioned over this entire world, this earth, to evangelize during the tribulation period. That's God's mercy upon this earth. We read that these, where John says, he says, I saw another angel ascending from the east... And this angel had a seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till till we have sealed the servants of our God on their forehead. And so these 144,000 are going to actually have the seal of God on their forehead. God's hand of protection. God says they're mine, and you can't mess with them. Have you ever wondered, when you think of just how vast all the many people in the world, over all the the centuries, in time of people coming, have you ever wondered, will God remember you in the end? Will he remember you as just one individual out of the masses of people throughout all this world that have been born and died and those that are alive? Will he remember you? In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, the Apostle Paul wrote, In him, speaking of God, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed. Did you know that? You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. 
That Holy Spirit of God, Paul says, is the promise. It's the promise and it's the guarantee of your inheritance. Will God forget you? If you're a child of God, you have been sealed by God, by His Holy Spirit that lives and dwells inside of each believer. It's the guarantee of your inheritance. You don't have to worry if that whole inheritance thing is going to work out. It will work out. You will receive your full inheritance. It says that this guarantee of our inheritance is going to to not be fully realized until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. Until that day, until we enter into glory with the Lord. We have our new bodies and it's going to, that full redemption is going to be fully realized in your life. A new body. Uh, everything's going to be new. You're going to fully see it in its completion. But you have this seal upon you. This guarantee. That should cause us to praise God in our hearts this morning. I hope that you, you are. God knows those who are his. He never forgets. Aren't you glad? How many things did you forget this week? <laughs> I, I, I mean, it, the older I get, I, I'm just trying to hang on to anything. I mean, you know, we forget. And God doesn't forget, and he won't forget you. He will, he will never forget you, nor will he forget your works. All the laboring that you've done for the Lord, all your Christian walk, every deed that you have done that God, in the name of the Lord, God is going to reward you for. There won't be one work, one deed that you have done in this lifetime that God will forget or let it bypass. In Hebrews 6.10 we read, For God is not unjust to forget your work, your labor of love, which you have shown towards His name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. In other words, keep pressing on, brothers and sisters. Keep going forward. Keep doing what God has called you to do. Keep running the race. God's not going to forget your labor of love for Him. And that you serve other people in Christ's name, in His love. You give that cup of cold water in His name. God sees that. And He won't forget. When John saw the beast and the false prophet prevailing over the saints... In chapter 13, I have to think that maybe John was thinking, what's going on? Is Satan going to prevail? It says that he prevailed against the saints, speaking about Israel, as they were running out into the wilderness and fleeing from the beast. Is Satan going to prevail against God's people? And then we come to chapter 14, verse 1. And we read, Then I looked, and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. Can you just see this picture? Jesus Christ standing there with 144,000 Jewish evangelists there on Mount Zion. Chapter 14 of Revelation, really, if we were going to break it down, we could break it down into three scenes. We read in verse 1, Then I looked. In verse 6 of this chapter, John writes, Then I saw. And the third scene is in verse 14. Then I looked. 
three scenes that John has seen here in this chapter. The first of these three scenes that John sees is, Behold a lamb. Now this word behold that we see here, whenever you see the word behold in Scripture, it's to bring special attention really to what John has seen. He's seeing this lamb standing with 144,000 on Mount Zion. Behold the lamb. Special attention. His eye is drawn to that. We read in chapter 13, verse 11, and we'll see this as we go through this chapter, that there's some contrasts here. Because in chapter 13, verse 11, we see that the false prophet, when he comes on the scene, he comes on the scene like a lamb. He's not the lamb of God, but he comes on the scene like a lamb. Deception for this world. The word lamb that we find here throughout Scripture, really, concerning Jesus Christ... Actually, we find this word lamb used 32 times in the New Testament. 28 of those times are seen in the book of Revelation. And four of those times are found in the chapter that we're in this morning. This word lamb, which is really just a descriptive name for Jesus Christ. That lamb that was slain before the very foundations of the world. The last lamb. We don't slay lambs anymore and put them on an altar anymore and sacrifice them to God because the last lamb went to the cross. There is no more slain of lambs for the believer. The first time that we saw Jesus as the lamb was in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. When John was taken up in this chapter uh, into the heavenly scene. And we read that he looked and it says, And behold again, he says, And behold in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. And then the last time that we're going to see the lamb is in the last chapter of Revelation in chapter 22 verse 3 and there shall be no more there shall be no more curse but the throne of God and the lamb shall be in it and his servants shall serve him what John is seeing really in chapter 14 in these three scenes that uh, that we are that I have uh, talked about here is that he's really seen a bigger picture, if we could say it this way, of what's going to transpire for the second half of the tribulation period. He's seen a bigger picture of that whole last three and a half years, yet without a lot of detail. Now we also have to keep in mind that chapter 14 is another one of these parenthetical chapters parenthetical meaning that it's it's information that is being inserted into the narrative of the book of revelation in other words when you read the book of revelation you cannot read it just in chronological order as you're reading it from chapter to chapter and that it all flows in some chronological order there are these parenthetical chapters where it stopped for a moment and then more information is inserted in there and in this case what we're seeing is really the big picture for the last three and a half years of the tribulation period as we go on into chapter 15 into the last chapter 22 then we're going to see in more detail what we're talking about here in chapter 14 John here sees the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. And with him, 144,000 Jewish believers that we read about in Revelation chapter 7. I want you to notice something, though. 
What we read in chapter 7 of Revelation, the 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, that God knows where those tribes are, where those people are. He's going to raise them up. But I want you to notice that when we get here to chapter 14, verse 1, that it doesn't read 143,999, does it? I hope your Bible doesn't say that. 144,000 are standing with the Lord there on Mount Zion. What does that tell you? God is faithful. God will be faithful to those 144,000 that he put his seal upon. And he said, I haven't lost a one of them. Satan did not get his advantage over a one. They're all here with me, standing here with me victoriously. I think that we all have read, probably as we've read our Bibles, this name Zion. And it's really a name that to a Jew, it has great significance. Uh, We could actually read in one of the Psalms, Psalm 132, verse 13, Uh, where it says that Zion is God's chosen place. It says, for the Lord has chosen Zion, has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Zion is God's dwelling place. It's a special place. But where is Zion? That's what we need to know. If we look up the name Zion in the Strong's uh, Exhaustive Dictionary, you'll find that the name Zion is used in 30 of the 150 psalms that are in our Bible. 30 of those psalms has a reference to Zion. Now, in a Jew's mind, a practicing Jew that is reading his scriptures, Zion would have had a great significance to those Jews, and it does still today. You've probably heard the term Zionist or Zionism. And really, the definition of a Zionist is the person is a person that believes that the Jews really have a right to their land or their nation. And so we could say, even as Christians, if you're happy over the fact that the Jews are returning to their land because God has given them this land never to be taken away, then you're really a Zionist because you believe that they have the right to their land. You're in agreement with what God has said. This name Zion is often used as a name really uh, for Jerusalem. It's, it's, it's really a name that is used for specifically for the hills that make up that area around the Temple Mount. And I have shown you uh, pictures of that before. I think I have one slide we can go to up here that you can get kind of an aerial view of this area. Zion. You're looking at it. What is the significance of Zion? Well, it encompasses really these high points there in Jerusalem. It's actually the highest elevation point. It's where the Lord is going to stand with those 144,000 Jews. It encompasses the Temple Mount. As you can see, the gold dome up there. That's the Temple Mount area that's there today. Now, the word Zion, we can find the first usage of it by going back into the Old Testament in our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 6. When King David came into the land and he conquered this particular area that we're looking at on the screen here, he conquered an area at the time that was called the the city of Jebus. And he overtook the Jebusites there in Jebus, and they had a fortified city that they believed that no one could conquer. And King David went in there, and he conquered the Jebusites 
And he built a city there that he called the city of David. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 6, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem. Speaking about King David, he went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land who spoke to David, and they were saying this to David, You shall not come in here. But the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking, David cannot come in here. You can't come up against this fortified city. But it says, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. That's how it reads. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion that is the city of David. And so you can see the red area there. That area that is now has house, housing on it was the walled city of David. Archaeologically, they have proven that that's the location of it today. That's where his home was. It's where he lived, the city of David. This is Mount Zion. Remember, I've been sharing with you about the, the uh, promises that God is going to fulfill, that Jesus Christ is going to reign once again upon this earth. He's going to take the throne of David. That is a, a, a prophecy and prophecies that are going to be fulfilled at the end of the tribulation period. When Jesus Christ sets up his millennial reign here on earth, he is going to once again take the throne of David. We also can read about Zion in scripture as making reference to that millennial reign of Christ that thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. We read and listen to this, and you can turn there if you'd like, Joel chapter 3, verse 12. It says, Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, whenever Joel is prophesying about something here future, He's saying uh, these nations that are going to come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which is speaking about the battle of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation period. So we're looking forward in Joel's prophecy. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. And then it says, put in the sickle. And we're going to read that when we get to verse 14 of chapter 14 here. Put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. There's going to come that battle of Armageddon when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is going to return. And he's going to come with a sickle in his hand, and, and God is going to smite the nations. The battle of Armageddon into the tribulation period. He says, multitudes and multitudes will be in the valley of decision. They're in the valley of Jehoshaphat. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. We read about that in Matthew 24 verse 29. About what it was going to be like at the second coming of Christ. And the Lord returning on that day. And then it says this. This is Joel prophesying about this coming day. The Lord also will roar from Zion. And utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake. But the Lord will be a shelter for his people. And the strength of the children of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Dwelling in Zion my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy. And no no alien shall ever pass through her again. And there he's talking about the millennial reign of Christ. He's going to reestablish his kingdom here on earth. And he is going to reign, and you and I that know Jesus Christ are going to reign with Christ for a thousand years during that millennial kingdom. At the end of that millennium is when Satan is going to be loosed and God's going to take him and and cast him into the lake of fire. And we're going to go on into eternity after that. Zechariah chapter 1 verse 16 says this, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. He's speaking again of a future day. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts. And a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Again proclaimed, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts. My city shall again spread out through prosperity. 
the Lord will again comfort Zion and will again choose Jerusalem. God has a special place for his people. But he also has a special place for this piece of land that you're looking at on the screen up there. Zion, Jerusalem, the place that he is going to return with mercy in that day. We also can find that Zion in the New Testament can also refer to a heavenly Jerusalem that is also coming. We're going to read about that when we uh, get into Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. It's going to give a description, really, of this new heavenly Jerusalem. But we read in the book of Hebrews in chapter 12, and you can write this down and read it later. Hebrews 12, verse 22. In these verses, we see a contrast between two mountains. The mountain of Moses, which represents the law, and Mount Zion, which is really a picture of the new covenant. We read in verse 22, But you have come to Mount Zion, and the city of the living God, the holy, excuse me, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly in the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. To God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the blood of sprinkling that speaks of better things than that of Abel. There is going to come a time where we are going to enter in to this heavenly Jerusalem as Christians. You're going to, you're going to come in. If you want to read what that, a little bit of what that new Jerusalem is going to look like, just read Revelation chapter 21 and 22, and it'll give you some descriptions of what that will be like. And just for a note, Israel is also in Matthew 21.5 and John 12.15 referred to as, the nation of Israel is referred to as the daughter of Zion. The question, though, could be asked, this morning of whether or not John is seeing these 144,000 Jews is he seeing them standing on the earthly Zion that we're seeing here on the screen or is he seeing them standing in the heavenly Zion that is also going to, to be in place it appears to me that what we're looking at here probably in these verses that, is that it's going to be the earthly Zion And the reason why is I believe that John here is standing on earth as he sees this vision. And I believe that as he is hearing this sound from heaven that we're going to read as we go further here this morning, that John is actually catching this as a vision of what he's seen. I believe he's seen these 144,000 standing with Jesus probably during the millennial reign of Christ after they have come all the way through the tribulation period unscathed by this world and by the Antichrist, standing there with the Lord. Remember that Zion, during that thousand-year reign, is going to be a restored earth. God is going to take this earth, and we'll get more into the millennium as we, we go further on in the book of Revelation. We're also told that they had their father's name written on their foreheads. And here's another contrast that we can see between chapter 14 and chapter 13. Because remember what Satan does? What's he do? He, he wants to put a mark on the right hand or on the forehead of those that are his followers. And here we see these 144,000 that have God's name written on their foreheads. They're mine. And Satan is saying all those that have that mark, they're mine. And we're going to see that as we go further in the next week here into chapter 14. The tense of the word when it says the father's name is written on their forehead. The word written there really is speaking of that it's referring back to when they were sealed by God in chapter 7. That the father's name was written on their forehead all the way back when he sealed them. That's when he wrote the name on their forehead. He says, they're mine. First John sees in verse 1 
something of a vision, and now he hears a voice from heaven in verse 2 and verse 3. And he describes this sound that he hears with three pictures. Look at your Bible, verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of a loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. Once again, as we have seen even prior to this, the identity or the identity of the voice spoken of here, it doesn't tell us who it is. Now, when I read that I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, my mind automatically goes back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 15, where we read that John saw this vision of Christ, and we read that his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Now, we know that that was a vision of Jesus Christ himself. And so when you read here, I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, you might think, well, this is Jesus Christ's voice that is speaking. The voice, though, uh, could also be the voice of angels in heaven that are also rejoicing with, uh, rejoicing, excuse me, in God's redemption of these 144,000. He's redeemed them and the angels in heaven are rejoicing. And that's the voice that John is hearing. Or it could be that the voice that they're hearing is the father. Uh, who is proclaiming to John that he has redeemed these 144,000 and he has brought them into Zion. But John hears this sound or this voice from heaven. Again, we see some words here that have confused people. It says that I heard the sound of harpists playing they're harps. And, you know, I, I, we get this picture. What's going on? What's the scene? What, what's, he, what's he really hearing here? And again, there's different possibilities of interpretation here. It, it says, I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. But other translations, uh, one specifically, the New American Standard, if you have it, <clears throat> excuse me, it reads, and the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. So, in other words, is the harps that he's hearing just another way of describing this magnificent voice that he heard coming from heaven? In verse 3, it says, Then they, or then they sang uh, then sang the, uh, then sang as it were a new song before the throne before the living four living creatures and the elders and no one could learn that song except the hundred and forty four thousand who were redeemed from the earth. Now I really, as I'm looking at this, I'm thinking that the voice that they're hearing are probably these angels. Uh, that John is hearing, singing these praises to God. He says that they are singing this before the throne of God. He's also saying that they, that that it is being sung before the four living creatures, which were those four angelic beings that we saw in chapter 5 of that heavenly vision, those four angelic beings that were there in the presence of the throne of God. And then... It says also before the elders, and we read about those also, the 24 elders, which I believe are representative of the church. And so here we have, if it is these angels, we have these angels that were singing this new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And then it says, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. No one else could learn it. He's singing, or they're singing this song, really, of praise for what God had done as those 144,000 stood there on Mount Zion. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, reads that the church age believers 
they also sang a new song uh, that really might be exclusive to the church because it refers to it as a new song. It says, and they, speaking about the church, they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by the blood out of every tribe, tongue, and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. And so we're going to be singing in heaven the church after we have been taken to heaven. We're going to be singing this new song. We've been redeemed. We also read, we're also told, excuse me, in verse 3, that no one could learn that song except the 144,000. And why? Why would that be the case? Well, I believe just like the new song that the church sang back there in chapter 5, this new song that the that's going to be sung for the 144,000 is going to be unique to them. No one has experienced what this 144,000 went through as they evangelized during that seven-year tribulation period. They're going to have a song of their own that maybe those that hear that song will be able to rejoice, but it's going to be unique to them. No one else could sing but the 144,000 the significance that it meant to them. And now, in verses 4 and 5, we can see seven things, really, of these 144,000. Seven things that really show the faithfulness of God, really, to them, but also their faithfulness to God. These 144,000 were faithful to their Lord as well as God being faithful to them. Look what it says in verse 4. These are the ones, speaking of the 144,000, these are the ones who have not defiled, were not defiled with women, for they were virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. I believe that what we're seeing here in these two verses really is these 144,000 Jews are really getting special honor. They're getting, in a sense, some special recognition for what really their li- what they did in their life through that seven-year tribulation period. All God did it through them. God empowered them, but they're getting this special recognition for how they handled their lives through that terrible tribulation period, that time of great tribulation that they were experiencing even in their own life as they ministered. They were not, we're told, defiled with women, for they were virgins. Now, this is another one of those areas that people have speculated, come to different conclusions as to what this means. Uh, if we read it in the literal sense, then what we're saying is that these are uh, Jewish male servants of God, the 144,000, that have kept themselves from sexual relationships, uh, relationship with a woman during the tribulation period. The question would be asked, why? And I believe it probably would be in the sense of being able to wholly commit their their lives and their service unto the Lord without any distraction. Not that you women and our wives are distractions, don't get me wrong. But without no distraction. That's in a literal sense. In a figurative sense, and some do translate it uh, this way, you could say that the 144,000 were remaining faithful to the Lord and they were keeping themselves from idolatry. They were keeping themselves pure during that whole tribulation period that they were out ministering the gospel to this world. I, you say, where am I at with it? I'm probably leaning more towards the figurative interpretation, though I could say it possibly could be both. 
It really could be both. I don't know. We know that the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians in chapter 7, verse 25, he's speak, speaking about people that were unmarried or people that are widowed. Uh, he says uh, it's better to remain single. He says that because time is short, he says the world is passing away. And if you find yourself and the grace of God is upon you to do it, it, it might have some benefits in your, in your ministry to remain single. Paul says, though, this is not a commandment. That's what he says in Corinthians there. He says, this is no commandment from the Lord that I'm saying these things. Yet I gave judgment, uh, judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress that is that it is good for a man to remain as he is. And so it could be either. You, you, you pick what you want. Some of the times when we get into these sections where it's really up for grabs what the interpretation is, what we need to do is sometimes set those things aside and focus on really what's being said here. The picture is here the faithfulness of God and his faithfulness to these 144,000 and that they're going to be standing with him on Mount Zion, which tells me, you know what? Uh, Nothing that this world is throwing at uh, that nothing that the enemy during the tribulation period is going to prevail over what God's plans are. God is going to fulfill what he has planned all the way to the end. We also read that these 144,000, that they follow the lamb wherever he goes, which I believe just speaks of their obedience. It speaks of their faithful service to the Lord. And I... You know, as I read through these things, I, I think I have to think of my own walk. You have to think of your own walk. How faithful am I in this life? Just think, this is the 144,000 going through the tribulation period. How faithful can we be in this life now? God, help me to be faithful and obedient and to follow you wherever you go. Wherever you lead me, Lord, I'm willing to go because you are directing my life. They were also redeemed from among men, which literally means they were purchased. Uh, They they were redeemed really by the blood of Christ, just as you and I have been redeemed. They are the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And again, we have some uh, different ideas here, but the first fruits... Really, typically, the Jew understood that the first fruits was the first portion of the harvest that was dedicated to God. What you gave back. These 144,000 are the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And so when the harvest would come in, they would take their best. They would take the cream of the crop and give it to God first. They wouldn't give God their leftovers. They would give him the first, they would give to God the first fruits. These 144,000 here are pictured as the first fruits of God. Now, some have thought that these first fruits has reference that there's going to be, because first fruits means that there's going to be others that are going to follow. But we know that the 144,000 is only unique to them. Now, it could have reference to the other Jews that are going to follow in after them. And we're talking about following in from the tribulation period into the millennial reign of Christ. Keep in mind that the people that come out of the tribulation period and that go into the millennial reign of Christ, it's only going to be believers, It's not going to be non-believers that are going to go in there and then reign with Christ. It's only going to be believing Jews and believing Gentiles that are going to go from the tribulation. These are the ones that survived, by the way. They survived the tribulation period, and they go into the millennial reign of Christ that is going to follow that tribulation period. Some have thought the first fruits unto God is that the 144,000 are standing there with Christ on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and that there is going to be others that will follow in after that, speaking of the other remnant of Israel that's going to be saved. There are others that believe that these 144,000 uh, or that the, uh, the first fruits are strictly just teaching of the church itself. 
that they are the first and Jew and Gentile, all that follow will follow after that. David wrote in Psalm 15, he said, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backpipe with his tongue nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change, he who does not put out his money as usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. The question is, who will abide in your tabernacle? Who's going to go in? And he lists all of those things. You know, those that have clean hands, those that have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, those that have been redeemed, those are going to be the ones that are going to go in to the tabernacle. We're going to go into that millennial reign, and we're going to go into eternity with the Lord. The testimony of these faithful saints, these 144,000 that we read in this chapter, they remind me of the faithful saints of Hebrews 11. We've all read that. They, they persevered through persecution and, and trials and, and all sorts of hardships of life. And in faith, they just continued on and they pressed on. And every time we read this, that chapter 11 of Hebrews, it's probably, it, it's convicting to me because here's these believers just pressing on through all of these hardships, these 144,000, this testimony that is given of them, they weren't defiled. They, they, they lived these lives, these faithful witnesses of Christ. God saw them all the way through, 144,000 standing on Mount Zion. I believe that it should be a testimony to us that we should follow in word that we should follow in conduct as we wait for the coming of our Lord. I mean, if you are having a struggle following hard after the Lord now, <laughs> I mean, think how the people that are going to go into the tribulation period that are going to receive Christ during that time. They're going to have to give their life, literally. Be beheaded because they, they didn't take the mark. Just think how, it'll, how hard it'll be to live for Christ during the tribulation period. But as believers, you're not going to be through the tribulation period. We have this window of opportunity before us. Right now, we have a window of time. The time is short. And we should be asking the Lord, Lord, help me that I would follow hard after you, harder than I ever followed before. And that I would live a life that would be faithful to you in the way that I live, that I would say no to sin, that I would look for opportunities to be used of you, that I would redeem the days that I'm living in, for they're truly evil. May the Lord fill each one of us afresh this morning, empower us. May we leave this place today really receiving his grace in our life that we wouldn't leave this place at all condemned, but we'd feel this, leave this place just sensing God's grace in our life, but also sensing his power in our life. That we would go out this next week and, and make a difference for Jesus Christ, whatever that might cost us. And so let's, let's call upon the Lord. Father, we, we do, Lord, come before you, Lord, humbled. But, Lord, we come before you, Lord, with hearts, Lord, that just desire more of you. Lord, more of you in our life, Lord, more of your power in our life. Lord, that you would pour out your spirit afresh upon us. Pour out your spirit upon this church, Lord. Lord, cause us to grow strong in your word, strong in your grace.
strong in our, our knowledge of you. Lord, use us. You shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the uttermost parts of the world. Lord, we need that power. Just as the early church needed it, we need it. And Lord, I just pray, Lord, that you would go before us this week, Lord. Help us to spend time with you. To spend time in prayer. And to look for those opportunities to be used of you. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com. From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word. Thank you.